0: And I encourage you, take out your Bible. turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. In a few moments we'll get there. So we talk about being a servant to those in authority who mistreat you. We talked about two weeks ago uh, our response to those in authority. Last week, we had Greg Baker here from the family Leader, and he shared from the perspective of how we're to treat those in authority from the government <clears throat> and the church and how those two roles work together. Today we're going to talk about those that mistreat us and how we're to respond from a biblical perspective. You know, NPR, National Public Radio, said a few weeks ago that the Bureau of Labor and Statistics denounced that 4.3 million Americans, or 3% of the entire workforce, quit their jobs in August. That was a record-breaking month piggybacking on previous record months. The great resignations as being called is real. It can be seen virtually across all industries. NPR said it's common to see a surge in quitting when the job market is tight and there's a cornucopia of open positions. But what's happening now is unlike anything we've seen before. Economists and pollsters are still investigating what is going on. And we see some of the <clears throat> unrest here in our community. We have the debate going on about working at home versus working in an office. We have the strike going on currently here at John Deere. We have issues with business and government officials mandating vaccine for those in their employment. We have lots of unrest in this workforce with employers and employees, and many of these things are unprecedented in my lifetime anyway. So workers are arguing for their rights, for better pay, for better benefits and other privileges. But today we're going to look at what happens when we as believers are mistreated in the workplace or anywhere or at any time for that matter. Some examples from scripture we think of David, King David, before he was King David. You know, he was a servant to Saul, who was the king at that time. And Saul knew that king David was going to become king, even rather than his uh, own son, Jonathan. And so he was jealous for David for a variety of reasons. But he treated him as a fugitive. He sought to kill him any way that he could. And David had two opportunities in his time running from Saul to be able to kill Saul, but he didn't do it because he told his men, don't touch the Lord's anointed. He still honored Saul, even though Saul was doing everything he could to destroy his life. I think of the Apostle Paul and how he shared his thoughts. When you read the book of Romans and We talk about other places. He was under the Emperor Nero. It's purported from history that it was probably Nero who caused Paul to be beheaded. But in Romans 12, as he's writing in from the prison cell to the church at Rome, he says this, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Peter, in his epistle that we're studying, is emphasizing what he has learned. He's learning that God's people serve others through suffering. Remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, he wanted to keep Jesus from being uh, captured and tortured and beaten. And uh, despite that fact, uh, you know, they came and they began to take Jesus away. And Peter pulled out his sword and he thought he was going to do a well-meaning thing and cut off some heads and repel this uh, opportunity to take Jesus. But of course, he swung and missed, but he got Malchus's ear, the servant. And Jesus restored, healed the servant's ear. But he told Peter to put the sword away, that this was not the time and Peter realized on the other side of the resurrection, and the day of Pentecost, the full significance of why Jesus had to suffer. So let's turn to our scripture that we're going to study this morning. First Peter, chapter two, verse eighteen. 1 Peter chapter two, verse eighteen. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls." And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, by this time of the Roman Empire, um, when Peter's writing this, all physical labor was only thought of for slaves and the lower class or the common people. Though the foundation of the empire's wealth was in the upper class, they believed that all the production had to be underneath them. Their attention, or so they thought, belonged to the more refined areas of life, like arts and Philosophy to debate these things. Some of the slave owners loved their slaves and treated them like family, but most slave owners mistreated them. They had no protections, the slaves did. They had no rights, they had no property. Aristotle said this, a slave is a living tool, and a tool is an inanimate slave. Think about that. That's how they viewed them. John MacArthur, in his commentary about this, said, writing about agriculture, the Roman nobleman Vero asserted that the only thing distinguishing a slave from a beast or a cart was that the slave could talk. A slave was just merely property, something means to an end, to get a profit. So there are several key passages in the New Testament where Paul addresses the issue of slaves and masters, employees and employers. And the relationship to one another, especially in light of so many slaves coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. You're not lifted up, you're not exalted. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. It was estimated at the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans that there were upwards of 50% of the people sitting in the church, churches at that time were slaves. It's interesting how you think about that because it made for interesting diversity where you have The slave owners, you had the slaves, you had the wealthy people, all coming to faith in Christ. And some of the issues that the Church of Rome faced and other churches in the empire faced were these. Number one, Christ-following slaves often assumed that they were free in Christ. They were free from their sin. And that they had a right to be free from their masters. But Paul reinforced that in Galatians 3.28, where he says there is neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he was saying they were equal, but in this world, they are not. Another issue that Paul dealt with is that Christ-following slaves assumed that certain societal elevation was due them because they had spiritual giftedness and could be leaders in the church. Now, can you imagine if you're a born-again slave and you're at the Church of Rome... And maybe you're a deacon, maybe you're an elder, and on Sunday morning, you're in this leadership, but Monday through Saturday, you gotta go and work for this person as a lowly slave. You can see how it created confusion among those early believers. Now, the New Testament does not teach that slaves should incite rebellion in any way or bring about retaliation if mistreated. And Peter and Paul are focusing on the slaves' attitudes being right before men, but more importantly, a right attitude before God. Think of Philemon. If you ever study the book of Philemon, little book in the New Testament, Onesimus was a runaway slave, meets up with Paul, becomes a believer in Christ. Philemon's his master, and of course Paul knew Philemon probably led him to the Lord as well. And Philemon had a house church, but Onesimus was his missing and runaway slave. And the book's all about reconciling that relationship sending Onesimus back, not only as his slave, but as a brother in Christ. So you see how they were dealing with these things at the beginnings of the church. So this brings us to our first main point this morning. Be mindful to show respect to those in authority. Be mindful. We're gonna have three be mindfuls today, something to keep in the forefront of our minds. Be mindful to show respect to those in authority. Look at verse 18 of 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. You and I, we are to be submissive to those in authority because they are the servants of God. <clears throat> Excuse me, the servants of God. We talked about that two weeks ago. Those in authority, those in legislator and the government all the kings and emperors they are servants of God the greek word here is oikos which is the word for house so it means that they were probably house slaves and primarily the farmers and the doctors were the ones who had these household slaves it says there in verse 18 be subject we talked about that a couple weeks ago to it's a military term to line up under to be subject to to follow the authority masters. Do you realize the masters, when they uh, transcribe this word into English, it's despots. Despots means someone who has absolute ownership and complete control over their slaves. But he says to be subject to them with all respect. That meant no bitterness, no anger issues, no negativity, just working and treating your master with gracious honor. Showing honor and respect to them and also showing honor and respect to God the Father, who is their ultimate master. Remember what Peter said earlier in this chapter, in verse 17, two simple words. Fear God. As he talked about those in authority, fear God. Remember that God created and established work in the Garden of Eden. Remember when he created Adam and Eve and he gave them work to do to Further, his kingdom worked to be stewards and managers over the resources that God had given them. But because of the fall, because they ate of the fruit that they were not supposed to, there were consequences for their sin and for how they were going to work. So next time you are pulling weeds in your garden, next time there's thorn bushes that you've got to cut out, blame Adam and Eve. No, no, don't blame them. We would have we probably done the same thing. But it says in Genesis 3.17, here's where it comes from. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. was were the consequences. And so the purpose of the servant-master relationship is developed as God brought it about in his word. Was to ensure safety. To bring about care and support and Productivity that would make a profit for the master. Notice some of these other words in verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, good. He said, good, one who is upright, beneficial, and satisfactory for meeting another's needs. A master who is gentle, one who is considerate, reasonable and fair. One, a master who is easy to submit to. But then we see another minor point under this one. We are to be submissive to those in authority even if we are mistreated. At the end of verse 18 he says unjustly. In some translations it's unreasonable. This means curved or crooked, perverse or dishonest. An example from the medical field would be scoliosis, scoliosis, which is the term used for the twisting of the spine. This is the same word that Peter is using here to talk about somebody who is unjust. Crooked, curved, perverse, dishonest. Take your Bible, if you would, turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. or Look it up on your smartphone. These verses are not on the screen, but turn over to Ephesians 6 where Paul shares his thoughts on developing a God-fearing attitude, extending beyond a good and gentle master. Even having a positive attitude in the midst of mistreatment. Paul wanted the slaves to submit to their master as if they were submitting to Christ himself and develop that attitude in Christ following servants. And you'll see this passage in Ephesians 6. You'll see it in Colossians, another perspective that Paul writes about this. So you could really do a study on the employee-employer relationship and from the perspective of looking at the slave-master relationship in the New Testament. But Ephesians 6.5 says this. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. As you would Christ. So in other words, when you see that master and he's giving you a command or something to obey or to do, look at them as though you're talking and looking to Christ. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. You don't do the job just when the boss is looking. You do the job no matter if the boss is looking or not because God Your ultimate boss is always looking down on your labor, on your task. Verse 7, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Notice again, no mention from Paul here about rebellions, protests, strikes, mutinies in the workplace. No disobedience of any kind, even if the employer is unreasonable. So how are we to act in an employee-employer relationship? Or what about those of us who may be retired and you either work a part-time job or you volunteer somewhere? How do we respond to those in authority? The only way we can treat those in authority with respect and have the right attitude when treated unjustly is because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not something natural that we can work up in and of ourselves. The application here is that we supersede our fleshly desires to respond inappropriately by walking in the Spirit. And we'll unpack that a little more as we go. But we have to rely on the Spirit when we're mistreated, when we're treated unjustly. When things are done incorrectly or wrong. Someone gets elevated that you see that didn't deserve it and you did. Or someone got the pay raise that you didn't get. That you didn't get the pay raise you just thought you deserved but somebody else did. All these things come into play. Our second main point today is this. Be mindful of God in the midst of injustice. Be mindful. Be mindful. Keep God in the thought process as you're going through mistreatment as people are taking advantage of you. In 1 Peter 2.19, he says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You and I, we can endure sorrow while suffering. And how can we do that? Notice he says in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. God is pleased when we humble ourselves and serve those who are over us. But we're to be mindful of God, as it says in verse 19, to have a clear conscience toward God and by the means and how we work that we are pleasing him no matter what. The most important thing for us to be mindful of in the workplace is to remember who we work for ultimately. And our ultimate boss is God and that you manage God's resources for that company and you maintain your testimony for Christ before a watching world. Remember, if God calls you to be a custodian, it would be out of God's will to be the CEO of a company. You go where God calls you to go. And as far as God's concerned, the CEO and the custodian, from his perspective, are all on the same level. Because they're all carrying out, probably in many ways ignorantly, his kingdom work in this world. The other thing that we men especially have to guard ourselves against is we're not to find our identity in our work. And that's really difficult sometimes to do, to separate that, to realize that we are a believer in Christ first. And if that job disappears, we're still going to be blessed by God. But our identity is not to be wrapped up in our work. We're to have the attitude to maintain an awareness of God and his glory in the workplace. Sorrow here means any suffering that includes pain, physical, mental, or emotional Um, So when we suffer unjustly, we're to be mindful God is in control. Sometimes in the Roman world, slaves were beaten. Sometimes they were deprived of sleep and food, given long hours and unfair treatment at times. But like the slaves of this time, we're to endure in our suffering and sorrow, and we do this by maintaining a heavenly perspective. While we're on the subject of slaves, especially here in America, we can think back in previous Generations of the Negro spirituals that were written. As they gathered around a fire or gathered around in the slave quarters, they would often write these songs as they thought about their freedom, ultimate freedom, when they got to heaven. An example of this is called Going to Shout All Over Heaven. It goes, I've got a robe, you've got a robe, all of God's children got a robe. When I get to heaven, going to put on my robe, going to shout out all over God's heaven." Heaven, heaven, everyone's talking about heaven, ain't going there. Heaven, heaven, going to shout all over God's heaven. That's what got them through as they endured suffering, was going to God's word, seeing from God's perspective the freedom that they would have physically in the future in heaven with their Savior. And then Peter tells us in verse 20 that we can receive the grace of God while suffering. We can receive the grace of God while suffering, and this is so important, because we suffer with Christ, and we suffer for Christ. And one of the most important things about this is that as we do that, we take in from God the grace that he's given us to be able to endure the suffering, but then the grace of God is revealed to those around them, around us, who are suffering by our attitude and the way we deal with these things in the workplace. In 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Notice what he says in verse 20. It's important to note. We do not get credit from God when we suffer for sin that we did. Okay, if we're stealing things from the workplace and bringing them home for our advantage, if we're not working as hard as we should... If we're taking advantage of our employer anyway and we get fired, guess what? That's not the will of God. That's not suffering for the cause of Christ. Those are the natural consequences that we bring upon ourselves for being disobedient. But he goes on to say in the second half of that verse that the suffering here is a suffering due to identifying with Christ and obeying what he told us to do. And out of our obedience to follow Christ, if it causes us to suffer, then so be it. John Piper says the suffering that comes to the obedient Christian is part of the price of living where you are in obedience to the call of God. Guess what? You know, Timothy said, they who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Didn't say shall, maybe, possibly, but will. And so when we are obedient, we are going to face uh, the pushback of this world system around us. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. And in choosing to follow Christ in the way he directs, we choose all that this path includes under his sovereign providence. Thus, all suffering that comes in the path of obedience is suffering with Christ and suffering for Christ, whether it's cancer at home or persecution far away. Notice we suffer for Christ and we suffer with Christ. And it's chosen, that as we willingly take the path of obedience where the suffering leads us. And we do not murmur against God. We pray, as Paul did, the suffering would be removed. In 2 Corinthians 12, you remember Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh. And three times he prayed and asked God to remove that thorn from him. But God said, no, my grace and my strength is sufficient for you. In your weakness, he said, I am made strong. It brought more glory to God for Paul to suffer and have to depend upon God the Father than it would for Paul to be healed. And sometimes our suffering will continue to keep us dependent and humble and following him to bring greater glory to God. All experiences of suffering and the path of Christian obedience, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. When we suffer, we are threatened in our faith by considering the goodness of God And it tempts us to leave that path of obedience because we want comfort in our lives. We don't like pain in our life, right? We don't choose that. But therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance and obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and how precious Jesus Christ is to us. Therefore, all suffering of every kind that we endure in the path of our Christian calling is a suffering with Christ as he goes through it with us. And a suffering for Christ as we stand on his behalf. And so for him, in the sense that the suffering tests and proves our allegiance to his goodness and power, and in the sense it reveals his worth as all sufficient compensation and price, that it's better to live for Christ and to die as gain. That, you know, as Paul said in, in, in Philippians 3:10, that not he doesn't want to know anything except the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his life, all things are worthless. So it's respectful submission to undeserved suffering that finds favor with God because such behavior demonstrates his grace upon us. So think of it, as we suffer, as we go through difficult times, if we're reviled or made fun of at work because of things that we do, guess what? It's revealing through our attitude the grace of God at work in our lives. In First Peter 2:21, he says, "For to this you have been called, for to this you have been called." In the Williams translation, it means, "For you have been called for this purpose,", purpose referring to suffering for doing good. The call here is the call to salvation. The next point we see: we're called to imitate Christ in His suffering. We're called to imitate Him in His suffering. In 1 Peter 2.21, it says, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, when you ask the average person on the street, who is Jesus? And you know, many of you know I teach at Scott Community College, and I ask this question to my students as well. And some of the answers you get, he was a great moral teacher. He did miracles, he taught about the kingdom of heaven. He did a lot of amazing things. He fed 5,000 people in one sitting. But you know what? The main purpose that Jesus came, his main focus, as Michael W. Smith says in his song, his secret ambition was to die on the cross, to save us from our sins, to redeem us, and to wash us in the blood of Christ so that we can have abundant life here on earth, but eternal life in heaven. And we need to remember that, and that's what... Peter is saying here, because Christ also suffered for you. In Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me, Paul said, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So you and I, we're to keep preaching the cross. We're to individually keep going to the cross on a daily basis to find forgiveness of sin and power over sin in our lives. Verse 21 says that Christ suffered for you and for me, that he gave us an example, footsteps to follow. The word example there means writing under. Now, many of you, you know, you've had children, you have grandchildren. And it's interesting to watch them as they learn to write, especially learning to write in cursive. And sometimes in yesteryear, what we would do or others would do was they would have a piece of paper where the letters were already written in cursive. And then he take a piece of tracing paper and put it over it and have the kids practice tracing over those letters. Well, guess what? That's what this is saying here, that you and I, we are following Christ's example. He has set the pattern, and we are to trace his steps in what we do. I think about when we have some big snowstorms, and when kids were little, And I would go out first and I'd make tracks out to the garage to get the snowblower. And my kids, they'd want to come outside and play and get their sleds. But sometimes those little kids, the snow was so deep, what would they do? They walk in their father's footsteps to be able to get traction and be able to get around in the snow. You and I, we are following Jesus in this world, stepping into his footprints of how he dealt with suffering in his life. Look at verses 22 and 23 of 1 Peter 2. Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter's borrowing from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9 and verses 22 and 23, saying that the Messiah, that when he comes, he will commit no sin. There would be no deceit, that word in the Greek there in that verse 22 means no sinful corruption coming out of his mouth while he was mocked, while he was beaten, while they spat upon him, while they ripped the beard out of his face. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He endured the suffering in order that he would please the Father, that he would complete the work of redemption and because he loved the world so much. And he endured it because he couldn't stand the thought of any of those, those who he has created to not be in heaven with him one day. That's what led him to the cross. In Matthew 26, think about this. When they were coming in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're coming to take Jesus. And the apostles are rising up. And the disciples are getting ready for a confrontation. In Matthew 26 Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus knew that the will of God was to go to the cross. Remember that as Jesus was nearing death. Think about that on the cross. He asked God to even forgive those who nailed him to the cross. Verse 23, it says, But Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You and I need to take that little section of scripture and memorize it, meditate, and bring this thought deep into your soul. Because this is so counterintuitive to our human experience. I've had to wrestle with this verse time after time after time in my life as well. And the sign of maturity is that we don't retaliate. We don't try to even the score in our humanity. We get to the place where we take the longest of views when mistreated, that God will balance the books in eternity. And that is comforting thought, but at the same time, a difficult thought to hold on to in this world and to be patient for that day. Sometimes we feel someone is getting off free from the consequences of their behavior, of what they've done to us but they will stand before God and give an account of their lives and their actions. God will vindicate those people that he possesses. He will take care of us. He will balance the books when we've been mistreated and we're suffering. This is a sign that we walk in maturity and the grace of God when we trust God in our mistreatment and our suffering. So here's our application under this point. We talked about the Spirit of God. Now we supersede our fleshly desires to respond inappropriately by walking in the grace of God. To go to God and say, God, I'm suffering. I'm in pain. Like Paul, help me. Help me to find that grace that's sufficient. That in my weakness you might be strong. Walking in the grace of God. Our third and last main point today is this. Be mindful of Christ's unjust death on our behalf. First Peter 2.24, Christ himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In his suffering, we are healed. We're healed. Christ is our substitute on the cross. He took our place. He took our payment for sin. He took our hell for all of eternity upon himself. In Galatians 3.13, It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Now listen to me closely. Jesus Christ was the only one who could have been the substitute for our sin. God is just, and he had to execute justice because we are sinners separated from God. And he poured out the wrath we deserved upon Jesus Christ. And in return... He showed mercy, grace, and love to us. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for you and I. That word bore there is a powerful word. Bore means that he took the massive weight of the sin of the world upon himself. He took and bore the massive weight of sin upon himself when he died on the cross. You know, medical doctors even today said that that Roman soldier that stuck a spear in a sword in the side of Jesus when he was dead on the cross, and it says water and blood poured out, mingled in the chest cavity. That was an autopsy. What they say happened was when you have blood and water that mingle in the chest cavity, it means that that body was under so much stress, emotionally and physically, that the heart literally burst into pieces, and the blood and the water mingled. The pressure of the world's sin caused Jesus' heart not only emotionally but physically to burst. It says that Jesus died to sin so we could live a righteous life before God and man. Now it says that might die it means here to be away from, the depart, to be missing or cease existing. Christ died to separate us from the consequences of sin so we could live a righteous life. Righteous means right living the way he wants us to. And then he concludes there by saying that is by his wounds we are healed spiritually. The tense of that Greek word there means it's in the past tense that we are healed from sin. It was a one-time act. It's not like the faith, faith healers interpret this verse. Our souls are healed, but our body will be resurrected in the future. And he took that from Isaiah 53, verse 5. The prophet writing thousands of years before Jesus Came on the earth, he said, But the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. The Messiah was crushed for our iniquities. Upon the Messiah was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with the Messiah, our wounds are healed. So in his suffering, you and I, we are drawn to the cross for salvation. We're drawn to the cross. Look at verse 25 as we conclude today for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I want you to think about that and think about this statement. In the Old Testament, the sheep always died for the shepherd but in the New Testament, the shepherd dies for his sheep. Think about that. Jesus died for his sheep. How do we know that? Well, we look at Luke 15. Every lost sinner is like a sheep that's gone astray that's ignorant, that's lost, that's wandering in danger, away from the place of safety, unable to help himself. And it says in Luke 15 that the shepherd went out, found his one lost sheep, left the other 99 there, and brought him home. He died for the sheep. And after salvation, Jesus is our shepherd, our overseer. Shepherd is one who feeds, who's the leader, who's the protector. One who cleans, who's the restorer of the flock says he's the guardian or bishop or overseer. He guides us to walk in his will on a daily basis. And in all this, we're to be imitators of Christ who gave his all for us through his suffering. The verse I quoted at the beginning of the service, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God because he couldn't bear the idea that any of his creation would not be in heaven with him. And he gave us a way to do that. So our application is we overcome injustice in our lives by imitating Christ's example in his sufferings. That's how we overcome injustice, by imitating Christ's example in his suffering. Our key thought in our one summary statement today is this, the takeaway as Christ followers, we learn to endure suffering by trusting in him who always judges with ultimate justice. Think about that, he will be perfect in balancing the books because he knows all, he knows everything about everybody at all times and he will balance those books. A few years ago I went to the Global Leadership Summit and the concluding talk was from Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. I had the privilege to hear these words and I actually found the transcript this week. It'd been several years since I'd seen this. But listen to what he says: every once in a while, because your Savior and my Savior is so committed to building the local church, he interrupts plants. And if you would put that picture up on the screen, if you would. Every once in a while, because your savior and my savior is so committed to building the local church, he interrupts our plants. He'll be willing to interrupt anything because whether you participate or not, cooperate or not, or believe or not, our Savior is building and will build his church, and nothing, nothing, nothing will stand in his way. Andy Stanley had taken his family. They went to visit Rome. They went to the Colosseum, which was a place of horrific things. Many people died as they fought for their lives, and many Christians were fed to animals in that arena, and people would come and celebrate like watching an NFL game, these people losing their lives. And he was struck by the significance of the cross that hangs over the entrance known as the Emperor's Gate. Andy Stanley said, I wonder if Paul could have imagined on his way to his execution that one day the Roman Empire would fall, but Christianity would remain. Could have you imagined that the people would travel to Rome and ask not where the ancient emperors, emperors were buried, but where he was imprisoned? and where Peter was buried? Or did he wonder if the church would be snuffed out like his own life would soon be? In your most discouraging moment, in the time when you think it's not working, that all is in vain, just remind yourself that there's a cross hanging over the emperor's gate in the Colosseum at Rome, that suffering wins the battle for Christians. I hope you think about the fact of what your approach and your attitude should be as we face those times of mistreatment in our lives. Let's bow for prayer. And as we pray today, we just think of that gospel message. Maybe you're today, maybe you're not sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. As every head is bowed and every eye closed, I encourage you to look into your heart, look into your life. Have you trusted in Christ and received the forgiveness of sin? So you have the assurance, the knowledge that when you die, you will be in the presence of God. The Bible says these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life by believing on Jesus Christ in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. If you're here today, maybe you've never made that decision for Christ. I encourage you to realize that each one of us were born into this world with a sinful nature. That we've broken God's laws. And James, it tells us if we've broken the law at one point, we're guilty of breaking all of the law. So we're sinful and God is holy and perfect and doesn't know what sin is. How do we bridge the gap? Well, Jesus Christ, as we shared today, willingly came and became our substitute, our sacrifice. He died on the cross, he shed his blood, and God said, by the shedding of blood there is forgiveness of sin. And that by coming to him and saying, yes, I'm a sinner. Lord, I wanna turn away from my sin. I trust in the finished work of what Christ did on the cross by grace. And I ask you to come into my heart and be my savior. That's the first steps in beginning the process of having a relationship with Christ. And I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if you don't know Christ as your savior, I encourage you to pray this prayer quietly in your heart along with me. And it's not the words of the prayer that's magic. It's the intention of your heart. You just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner. I'm imperfect. I've broken your loss, done things wrong. But I ask you to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me of my sin and to come into my heart and be my personal Savior. Help me to turn away from my sin and turn to you in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, and maybe here today in the quietness of this moment, no one's looking around. You say, yeah, I just prayed that prayer, and I want to just acknowledge that before God and before Pastor Ed, and so I can pray for you. Anyone here today say, I prayed that prayer. I want to be sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that I'm on my way to heaven. Anyone at all, just before we close. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this teaching today. We thank you for the example of Christ. Lord, he not only endured the pain and the suffering, but now he gives us the word and the Holy Spirit living within us, and the grace of God to enable us to follow in his footsteps, to imitate his attitude in the midst of suffering and mistreatment. Lord, help us. Help us to apply these things to our lives today, we pray and ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.